Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5 with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Whole Heart Eating Podcast. It's Christina here today, and I am so excited to share with you today's episode with Dr. Katja Rowell. Dr. Rowell has worked in child feeding for over a dozen years. She teaches the importance of responsive feeding and therapies to parents, pediatric feeding specialists, family support therapists, and child care staff, and consults with corporate clients, nutrition education, and public health providers, literally anyone who will listen. And today, I'm so excited to have her on. She is the author of the book, Love Me, Feed Me, and co-founder of Responsive Feeding Pro, a digital learning platform for feeding professionals focused on a responsive feeding therapy framework for children with feeding and eating challenges. Today, she and I are discussing the foundations of responsive feeding therapy method and how it intersects with Ellen Sater's division of responsibility. We also dive into how to create a more peaceful eating experience for you and your children, letting go of the power struggle, and how to foster safety and connection at mealtimes. Who couldn't use a little bit more peace at mealtimes with little kids? Let's dive in, guys. If you want to dive in and introduce yourself, that would be amazing. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So my name is Katia Rowell and I'm a family doctor by training, but for the last, well, I became a parent um, 17 and a half years ago. So that was really um, my entry into this work around feeding kids. And, um, you know, as a family doctor, I'd been giving out feeding advice and I really had no idea what I was doing. It was just sort of like, well, this sounds right. And here's what I've been taught or what I think is right. Um, and so um, I realized with my daughter pretty quickly that I didn't know how to feed her. I knew I knew kind of what, um, but it was that emotional piece, that psychology piece, her relationship with food, our relationship together. and. Um, I very quickly became very anxious about feeding her and was I doing it right and she seemed to be eating too much and she was too big according to the growth charts and um, and so I tried to feed her from that place of fear and trying to get her to eat and and take in less and it just it, it backfired and it was spoiling our relationship um, because it was focused around me keeping food away from her so I had a food preoccupied toddler. And so um, that was my introduction as a parent. And so learning about a responsive approach and, um, you know, letting her decide how much to eat and trusting her body in that process was um, like an absolute revelation in my personal life. And then just all these pieces fell into place in terms of my work in family medicine and and just how much um, how much quality of life and suffering is happening around how we relate to food that I think is preventable. So I, I launched this second career into helping parents feed kids from a place of confidence and, and not from a place of fear. 
Oh, I love that. And I like how I kind of like most things, it comes from a place of our own personal lived experience and then learning and kind of growing from there. For people who don't know, since we kind of jumped right in, um, could you share a little bit about what is responsive feeding and how it kind of came to be to you? I mean, you shared a little bit of how it came to be for you, but could you share like kind of the basics, like the little cliff notes version before we dive in deeper? We're going to go all into it, but just a little bit. <laughs> sure, <clears throat> sure. So um, when I first learned about this, I learned about Ellen Satter's work and the division of responsibility. And I um, was part of that clinical faculty group for a couple of years. And so the division of responsibility was my introduction to trusting my daughter. And it was uh, that is a strategy where the parent decides what, when, and where children eat, and the child decides how much from what you provide. And um, it's incredibly powerful, and it was transformative. And um, however, as I worked with more and more families where they were saying, you know, well, we've been in feeding therapy for two years, or we have this extreme picky eater, or my child is hoarding, or, you know, my child um, is autistic, or, or whatever the challenge was, I felt like um, it needed to be more flexible and more accommodating. And so I really dove into learning with speech therapists and occupational therapists and learning about the sensory piece and, and psychologists. I'm, I'm really lucky to be part of a great team that's kind of forming this responsive feeding therapy um, and defining it and applying it. Um, and so it, it's more overarching in terms of um, to me, the underlying foundation of responsive feeding is that that we protect the child's autonomy. So there's there are five values from the responsive feeding world. So it's protecting the child's autonomy. Um, it's focused on the relationship between the parent and child primarily. Um, focuses on the child's sense of competence and confidence. So those are those are the three kind of basic needs. That's a psychology um, term for humans to thrive is having autonomy, warm, attuned relationships and competence. And then when those are in place, it supports the child's internal drives to eat. So that's being able to tune into hunger and fullness cues, curiosity, pleasure, soothing, all of these different reasons why we eat. Um, and then the fifth piece is looking at, you know, everything that's going on for children, that whole child lens. So what's happening at school? You know, what about if there's there's uh, food insecurity? How do we feed kids when maybe money's tight? We, we're not, you know, exposing to 15 different heirloom tomatoes. So <laughs> all of these different pieces um, fall together. And then what I love about the responsive piece, so, so you know, the division of responsibility, sort of here's parents' jobs, here's the child's jobs, and that's absolutely valuable. But to me, the language of being responsive puts the focus on the warm and attuned adult um, observing what's happening with the child and then responding to the feedback they're getting in the moment. And, and so, you know, if it, and, and I think this is so important when parents get advice like, well, you just put milk out and say, well, everyone's going to have milk today for lunch. And so if your child sits down and drinks that milk happily and you have this wonderful meal, fine, that works for that child. But when I tried this with my daughter, it was like um, I got immediate and intense pushback. And so then I'm responding to how my child with their temperament, with their sensory needs or their preferences, or just that day, I can respond in the moment to 
um, to what's going on. To me, it's just this um, framework where we're prioritizing enjoying our kids, having that connection, the love, the care, the connection, and then the food is, is not the primary thing that we're thinking about when we're feeding our kids. Yeah, one of the things that I really took from your book, and I'm going to, we'll talk about it a little bit more, but the book is called Love Me, Feed Me, and I'll share it in the show notes and everything as well for everybody. But one of the things that I really liked is right from the beginning, you say it's really about supporting a healthy feeding relationship. And that made me think immediately about how so often when anyone like, you know, a parent or even for yourself, for yourself, we tend to think of healthy feeding. And I use that in quotations of what instead of how and how focusing on how can actually create that deeper connection. And as a result, a more broader, maybe a healthier feeding relationship with your children. And that doesn't necessarily always have to mean eating what you want them to eat. And I think think that's really hard for parents to let go of, of that piece. Could you talk a little bit about the what instead of how? Absolutely. Um, I, I think this is so important um, when we focus on, and usually it's vegetables, right? When we focus on, um, I have to get you know three colors in or I eat the rainbow or this many different fruits and vegetables. When we focus on that, um, we often lose the connection because then we have an agenda. So we go in with, I want her to eat X, Y, and Z in this meal. And that necessarily, when we have a goal or an agenda invites um, distraction from connection and it invites pressure. And it's really fascinating to me. I, I um, am seeing more and more on social media, these sort of um, you know kid nutrition experts saying, well, don't pressure your child to eat but instead um, make it a game. So let's see who can put more blueberries in their mouth. Let's see who can crunch this the loudest. Can you crunch this louder than me? Um, Look, let's paint with, you know, let's stamp with the blueberries. Oh, look, when I open it up, it's green inside. And and like this constant commentary, even if it's fun and playful is kind of a, a, a message that I wanna get across here. If we go in with the agenda of like this meal is only successful if my child eats, um, you know, one to three blueberries or whatever it is, it sets up conflict and it sets up disappointment and children will feel that they will sense that going in. Um, And there's great research. There's a Ph.D. researcher, Hazel Wollstenholme, who's actually um, interviewed children around um you know the parents agenda and and they say things like i know my mom's frustrated um i can i know she's angry you know she tells me i used to like this but i know she's just trying to get me to eat it so kids are very clever and they know when we come in with an agenda and that unfortunately that short-term meal-to-meal agenda and trying to get them to eat a certain way I think really slows that process down um, for kids in terms of expanding variety. 100%. I mean, I see with my own toddler, you know, Um, my, my daughter, we, um, she sometimes can, she's a, a holder, if you will. So she sometimes doesn't always go to the bathroom. And so, you know, the nutritionist in me is like, oh gosh, we got to get her to go in the bathroom more. And then I got focused on fiber. I'm like, we got to get all the fiber in. And, um, 
every time I went against my approach for being responsive and being division of labor, like division of responsibility approach to it. Every single time I tried to push this kid to have a blue, like to have, you know, broccoli or to have blueberries or have anything that had, you know, it always ended up, and this is a kid who likes those foods, who doesn't usually push against it, but immediately it's becomes like this whole game around control. And I remember one day I, I turned to her and I said, you know, I don't really like pushing you to eat stuff and I really don't want to, don't want to do that. So we're done. We're done doing that. We know that we need to go potty every day. So we're going to work on going potty every day and we can do it in other ways, but I'm not going to fight with you about food. And it was immediately like, she was just like, (laughs) thank goodness that that party's over. And I think, I think it's really hard because we, as you mentioned in the book, you describe it so well with calling it um, the worry cycle. And I think as parents, we do get stuck in this, well, they're saying that I need to do this. And so then this feeds my own internal worry that then creates this whole cycle that comes about it. Can you walk us through the worry cycle and how it kind of prolongs this struggle um, and that loss of connection with our kids at the table? Absolutely. So, um, you know, it's a little diagram that I had made for the first edition 10 years ago, and it describes something that um, it's in the research. We we know that this is described in the research, this dynamic, and then I saw it with my clients all the time and in my own home. And so, you know, it starts with the parent, um, or rather it starts with a child who maybe has some feeding differences, or maybe there's a challenge. So for you, it was constipation was the challenge. And sometimes it's a perceived challenge. Like I think my child is too big or too small or they eat too much or they eat too little. And that's something I hope we touch on is these misperceptions where there's so much worry where there doesn't need to be. So, but sometimes there is something to worry about. So then, you know, hopefully you have a a doctor who will (laughs) help you look through that. Not often the case, but so we have a child who, for whatever reason, there's anxiety, there's a sense that, you know, we have to, help this child to eat or deal with something. And then we as parents, and again, I've been there, so I have empathy. um, We don't necessarily know what to do. We hear you have to make them try it 10 times, or um, you you read an article about um, how important DHA is for brain development, then you panic because your child isn't eating one to three servings of fish a week or whatever (laughs) it is. Um, So we as parents get bad advice we don't often get helpful advice from the people we turn, turn to when there are problems, the, the family doctors and pediatricians. And I'm a doctor, so I feel like I'm in a position to call my colleagues out and to empathize with them because we didn't get trained in any of this stuff. So mm-hmm. then we have the parent who's like, I don't know what to do. My, you know, let's take one example, um, a, a client's underweight Um, quote, baby was sent home from the hospital and the pediatrician said, do whatever you have to to get X number of ounces in a day. So we have this terrified dad, she's not eating well. And what he ends up doing out of his fear that she'll need a feeding tube is, you know, clamping her head down with his one hand and forcing her to feed the bottle and she's coughing and, you know, choking and turning different colors and, you know, the most loving engaged, they're feeding pumped breast milk and 
Um, and, and then what we see is the child resisting or pushing back for all kinds of reasons. So in that case, the baby was pushing back because she was, you know, protecting her airway and it was a very unpleasant, unconnected feeding. So then the child pushes back and maybe it's like my daughter pushing back against me saying, you have to have milk at lunch today. <laughs> um, so kids push back for whatever reason. And then it seems to reinforce to the parent and the adults like, ooh, this child can't do this thing. So now we have to try harder. And the visual is like a, a spiral in the middle because parents um, that I worked with said, you know what? It feels like we're circling the drain or it feels like a black <laughs> hole and we need a hand out of this. And so, um, so that's a very typical um, dynamic, whether we're trying to get kids to eat more or less or different foods. And we have really good research that says that, you know, while at one meal, bribing with dessert could get that one bite of, you know, um, blueberry in, um, over time, it actually becomes counterproductive and kids eat less well and are more prone to having, um, you know, dysregulated weight gain. Mm-hmm. No, that makes so much sense. And I, I also want to empathize with the parent with who was going through that with their infant feeding. When you're told to do whatever you have to do and you care about your child and you want them to thrive, um, you'll do just about anything to make sure. And you're sleep deprived on top of it. And, you know, all kinds of decisions are getting made and it's really overwhelming. And I, I feel like that circling the drain kind of analogy can feel so real. And I, I imagine that there's so many parents listening to this thinking, wow, thank you. Someone's finally talking about it. Mm. Um, I want to touch back on <clears throat> what you mentioned earlier about the misconceptions, because I don't want to forget about them. And I think that there are times where we think that it's actually a problem um, and then we get hyper-focused on it and the pediatrician gets hyper-focused on it or their coach gets hyper anyone, any number of person gets hyper-focused on something. And then we perceive that as something that we need to fix. And a lot of times too, I do think as a parent, I've talked about this with um, another guest on a previous episode about how, like how sometimes feeding can feel like a parental scorecard in a lot of ways. And so I'd love for you to talk about these misconceptions and what's real and maybe what's not from a, from a physician standpoint. Yeah. I mean, oh, there's so many things. I have a little notebook. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, I want to talk about that, that scorecard. And I want to talk about this. And um, so one thing I, before I jump into the misperceptions is the scorecard thing absolutely is true, especially with social media and um, there's so much attention, right? If, if you have the bento box with, you know, the one M&M in the middle, and then there's, it's filled with peppers and berries and whatever else. <laughs> um, or on social media, I once unfollowed a friend who posted, I was salty that day, and she posted like her two-year-old drinking a green smoothie. And she said, mama's doing something right. And I just, oh, it just rubs me the wrong way. Because if for whatever reason, you don't have a little foodie drinking green smoothies, um, the implication is mama's doing something wrong. So yeah. there's so much blaming, mostly falling on mothers. Um, and it does feel like a scorecard. And and one of the most, I think, harmful talk about scorecards is the misperceptions around growth and weight in particular. And um, it feels like a report card. It feels like you walk in, the first thing they do is weigh your child and then plot it. And they're either, you know, in the red zone or the green zone, you know? And like, we, I mean, that's a whole three hour thing is talking about growth charts and these labels and BMI, but 
um, it feels like like the everyone has forgotten that humans exist on a continuum there have always been there will always be higher weight children and lower weight children um, but we've sort of reduced this to um, where a kid plots on a growth curve and um, and so you know quote normal or healthy weight is is like average plus you know, one, you know, bringing back some you know, statistics and biology terms, but average is sort of uh, healthy plus or minus one standard deviation right on this, this and this uh, statistics thing, which gives me hives, but, um, and then any kid above the 85th percentile is now abnormal or unhealthy. And, and that is the current cutoff for quote, overweight and obesity, which are terms I, I, I don't like, they're stigmatizing and they're not clinically meaningful for the individual. And then um, we have, you know, the same on the bottom end. And so when your child is growing at the 10th or 20th percentile or the 90th percentile, if that's roughly where they've been growing, they're just smaller or bigger than average. It's not abnormal for that child. And, and so much of the nuance is lost and we're mislabeling smaller than average children and larger than average children as having unhealthy bodies. And then it turns the child's body into a problem to solve. And, um, you know, and, and this is incredibly, incredibly harmful. Um, I also, something I was surprised to learn about is that actually most kids in the first year will move around on the growth chart quite a bit. Like they go from 10th to 50th percentile or 50th to 10th percentile. And that's called discontinuous growth. But now there's such a focus on growth charts that they look at that and go, oh, 10th to 50th, they're gaining too fast. I've literally had parents of exclusively breastfed infants told, your child is gaining too quickly, or they're, quote, oh, you know, um, they're, I, I have to, I guess we have to use it because we're on the radio, they're obese. So cut out a nighttime feedings or make them wait half an hour after they seem hungry. So we're not responding to children. And in fact, um, parents are being told to ignore the child's cues. They're being told to use non-responsive feeding practices. So with the caveat, of course, that any weight loss to me is really an urgent situation. And if kids are you know, going from 50th to 10th percentile, that warrants a full, you know, history, physical exam, lab results as necessary, but at least a subset of kids who are moving around on the curve are being mislabeled and with, with really bad consequences. Because that then is, your kid's too big, make them eat less, and mm -hmm. then we get in the, in the worry cycle. Parents try to restrict them, then they get food preoccupied, which is how I found myself with the food preoccupied toddler. Um, or your kids too small, get them to eat more. And then we see, you know, eating less well over time. So the, the biggest misperception to me is around weight and growth, which is why I spend like pages and pages on it <laughs> in the book, because I want to reassure parents and often we can. Um, and then the other two misperceptions are around how much the child is eating. And another one is misperceptions around nutrition, like, you know, protein, Parents tend to really overestimate how much protein children need. Parents worry that sugar is addictive and it's not. And so there's a lot of worry about protein and salt and um, carbohydrates and all of these different things where um, a lot of the time parents don't need to worry. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great um, 
thing to point out to parents um, that sometimes these things that we get focused on are things that we don't really need to be as focused on. And that if you look at your child over the, you know, over the year, over a longer period of time, they probably are getting a little bit of everything, but we go into it if like what the plate needs to look like and what that needs to be. And I think that can be really overwhelming. And as far as the you know, the early on feeding and restrictive feeding for even an infant as someone who has postpartum depression and anxiety, what a way to turn that one on, <laughs> you know, to go in both times that my, both of my children had feeding issues from the get-go. My first, not as much because, um, I think it ended up being more of a lactation thing, but it led me down a road of being so anxious and worried about things that ultimately, I remember the day that it changed for me, my friend turned to me and she said, this doesn't look like a child who's struggling to eat. Mm. And I remember saying that like, wow, you know what? You're right. She's not crying. She's not upset. She's just gaining at her own rate and I'm going to let it go. And it was, that changed everything. And then with my most recent, um, it, it has taken her a long time to gain and she was dropping in percentages. So it was a little worrisome. Um, but talk about turning on that anxiety and then the things you would do when they do tell you, well, make sure you're getting in 25, 30 ounces of milk, and maybe you shouldn't be breastfeeding anymore. And all these types of things come over and kind of take over. And it, really does turn away. I remember my mom said to me, she said, what point are we force feeding this infant? (laughs) You know, she's like, are we force feeding her? And, um, I, and it wasn't like, um, like I didn't feel like I was necessarily force feeding her, but I needed to offer, you know? And so Mm -hmm. to me, it was always about offering it and saying like, okay, she gets, you know, distracted and wants to see what her big sister's doing and things like that. But I think that is the responsiveness is like observing, who they are and their personality instead of getting focused on the numbers. But as a parent, if we are looking at it as a scorecard and we have a propensity for anxiety or perfectionism or anything like that, I mean, ding, 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 all of the lights turn on. And I feel like there's only one way to go than to hyper fixate on this thing because we feel like it says something about us and our child and our ability to parent. And we haven't even gone to the more teenage years and the um, neurodivergent children where it feels like even more of a struggle. And I would love for you to talk um, more about that and the how this shows up in neurodivergent children and those families a lot. Yeah, um, you know, and I just want to first recognize um, so I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to first. Uh, <laughs> That's fine. I, because you just, what you said was so meaty about um, anxiety and depression. And, um, you know, there, there is, there is a lot of social pressure now to breastfeed and mm-hmm. um, not necessarily a lot of support. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I had, we had horrible breastfeeding problems and I'm, I'm convinced had I not given formula on day four, um, a lactation consultant came out to our house that she would have been hospitalized with, um, you know, high bilirubin and, and, and it absolutely, um, like what, a what, a um, I don't want to, I've had few major issues in my life and it challenges, but not being able to breastfeed my daughter was like this black hole for me. It was the closest I've come to, um, a, a clinical depression. And that was, um, 
it goes to the core of who we are as parents and as mothers, particularly with breastfeeding, there's the feeling of I, I couldn't do it. And, and so, um, and I, and looking back now, I think I also had some postpartum depression and that was definitely worsened with our breastfeeding struggles. And, you know, a month in my husband brought my daughter to me and he's like, she's being so cute. And I was pumping and I was like, get out and pumping. And that was such a wake up call of like, I'm missing this. And I, mm-hmm. you know, and I still look back, I think there is a lot of preventable suffering, which, which looking back, um, I, you know, I wish I could have known then what I know now, but so absolutely the, if you have that propensity for numbers, for achievement, for anxiety, and you go to the doctor and, you know, oh, we're still in the red zone, it, it, it really hits you to the core. So, um, so for parents, you know, to process that and to get some support around that, hopefully. Um, yeah. And, uh, it's, oh, there's so many things. Sorry. But, <laughs> and, and, you know, and even just going out and having someone say, oh, look at your cute little peanut or your, your little peanut or your chunky monkey. Like mm-hmm. when you have a kid who's growing at the extremes of the growth chart, if they're bigger or smaller than their peers, it's like constant comments about what or how much they're eating. And so that just piles on to the feeling of like, oh, I'm not doing something right. So if we think about you know, when challenges or sensory differences or neurodivergence comes in, um, this is where I think the flexibility piece is so important and, and maintaining that connection. And really, this is where that felt safety piece helps us too. So what are we observing in our child? I've talked about like we're, we're attuned and we're observing our child. And what we're kind of observing is their emotional state, their nervous system, what's going on with their bodies. Um, are they at the table and they're wide eyed and they're breathing really fast and they're leaning back and they're, you know, you can tell they're in distress um, or are they, are their bodies calm? Their breathing rate is, is typical. They're making eye contact they're, uh, you know, if that's something they, they typically do and they're engaged in, in a way that indicates that they're in their place of calm. And so, that's another really helpful piece, I think, whether you have a child with, um, uh, you know, sensory differences or not, um, is are they in their felt safety zone? Are they calm? Do they feel like, um, does it look like they feel comfortable and happy to be at the table? And that that's a huge piece of the puzzle. When kids are in that zone of felt safety, um, then they're able to Um, listen and learn and access curiosity and access signals coming from inside their body more easily. So even if, say, there are challenges with feeling hunger or fullness cues, um, you're not ever going to be able to access them the same way if your heart rate is 180, you know, your blood Mm -hmm. pressure's up, your body's flooded with stress hormones. Um, And so that is a really important piece. Whatever's going on is to, to ideally have the child be able to be in a calm sort of centered space at eating times. Yeah, I love that. I, you actually kind of partly quoted one of my favorite quotes, one of my favorite quotes from the book where you said that um, any health benefit of a few bites of broccoli um, in a flooded 
body with a uh, body flooded with stress and hor- stress hormones, increased heart rate, blood pressure and tears is pretty much lost. And as a nutritionist, I have to say thank you for stating that so clearly because you're not going, the child's not going to digest and assimilate and utilize those nutrients when, when it's in a stressed environment. So it might feel like a win that they've taken a couple bites, but really it's not a win because one, they didn't really get the nutrients. And two, we've created an environment where broccoli now becomes this new, this new control mechanism and this new way to, um, feel unsafe in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways. And the last thing we want to do is for our kids to feel unsafe when it comes to eating. It's such a important piece of our lives. It's how we thrive. And I'm thinking about for parents who maybe are like, okay, I hear you. We have a very stressful dinner table experience right now. And that's how it is. What can we do to start to shift that? Do you have any advice for kind of setting a new tone at the table moving forward? I think the first thing is for the parents to to um, sit and really think and reflect. And so I, I recommend journaling for for parents that are really struggling with um, feeding and to one, ask yourself, what am I worried about? Hmm. What what am I worried about in terms of, um, you know, I'm, we're trying to get kids to eat. So so I guess the first question is, you know, what's happening at the mealtime? And usually it's it's power struggles over trying to get the child to eat certain amounts or certain foods. So let's say that's what's going on is, okay, we get to the table and I, I want them to have two bites of a protein. So they have to eat that before they can have more of the food that they want to eat, whatever, whatever the power struggle is. So reflect on, you know, what am I trying to get them to do usually that they're resisting? And then why? Why am I trying to get them to eat the protein or whatever it is? And then do I need to worry about that? So finding more resources, and hopefully we've given a little bit of some, some reassurance here. So whether it's a book or, you know, uh, you know, how much protein does my child actually need? And it's the one nutrition formula I put in the book is sort of <laughs> how many grams of protein roughly per year of age, because almost all of the parents of picky eaters where they worry about protein, when we sit down and math it out, the child is getting more than enough protein. So so what are you worried about? Do you need to worry? And if not, um, you know, what can you let go of? You know, it's this, this is this tugging and this pushing that you described so well with your child mm-hmm. that whenever you tried to get her to eat fiber filled foods, it was like completely backfired. So, so um, spending some time observing what happens when I say, okay, you don't have to eat it, but I want you to just lick it, or I want you to take one bite of this, or a no thank you bite, or you need to eat X before you can have dessert. So when you say these things, also, how is your child reacting? And usually just that um, awareness can help for a lot of families to say, okay, well, we're gonna try something different. So the other piece is then, what have you been doing so far? List it out, list out all the things you've been trying to get them to eat more, less, or different foods and sit with it for a while and go, you know, this is where you doctor fill yourself and say, <laughs> well, how's that working for us? You know, how's it working? And if it were working great, you wouldn't be doing this. So, uh, and then get some, some resources like podcasts or books or whatever to, to try to do things a different way. So I'm going to let go of the rope. I'm going to put the food out. 
that we're serving, including something I know that my child usually eats, one or two things maybe, and I'm gonna put it in the middle of the table. If my child is able to self-serve themselves, um, then that's a really useful tip in terms of neutralizing battles at the table. So, so I'm moving on now from reflection to what can parents do. So the first thing would be to stop pre-plating. That's the number one tip that families tell me neutralizes immediately half of the power struggles. Because if you've pre-plated and you set the plate down, immediately, generally, you might hear, I don't like that. You know I don't like that. That's touching that. How much of that do I have to eat? How many bites of this before I can have my Oreo or whatever it is? So when we, we stop the pre-plating, we've neutralized the battles and the negotiating, and the child can actually sit in that, that calm state rather than immediately going to anxiety and what do I have to eat? What am I gonna have to do to get my dessert? Then we're out of that curiosity zone and we're out of the zone of connection and autonomy. So we're supporting their choice with self-serving, including options that they like. Um, and then for the parent, it's recognizing also that this is not going to be immediate. So um, it's it's sitting on your hands or not saying anything for the three or four meals where they don't take that blueberry onto their plate or the three or four months where they don't do it. Mm -hmm. That's the really hard part is I think also when parents hear you shouldn't pressure, they try it for a meal or two or a weekend, but they're still bribing with dessert. Um, so <laughs> I have parents come back and say, well, I tried what you said, or I read this blog post and I didn't pressure for a weekend, but he didn't eat a single fruit or vegetable, but they're still commenting about it. They're still sort of sales pitching. They're still, you know, encouraging, or they're still withholding dessert or so there's a lot to it for families. So I would encourage families to learn more. Um, the second piece is if you are serving something sweet at mealtimes to um, serve all foods with the same emotional energy. So the potatoes, the chicken, the Oreos all have the same emotional energy and serving the sweet with the meal is the number two tip that families say helps neutralize all of that negotiating angst and power struggles. So the Oreo or two is on the on the napkin next to the empty plate and kids can serve themselves. And yes, they'll probably eat the Oreos first for a while. <laughs> um, and then as the sweet begins to lose its power, we see kids, you know, often going back and forth or being able to manage and having that neutral approach to sweets um, is super important in terms of like taking it off its pedestal, because when we have kids earn dessert by eating certain foods, research suggests and are, you know, observing our kids that it actively makes them dislike the stuff we want them to eat, right, that they have to slog through to get to the dessert, mm -hmm. and it actively makes them more focused on sweets. So those are kind of some, some practical tips to, to get started with. No, those are wonderful. And I think even um, for for myself, I, I see it too with my with my daughter and I've seen it with other people as well. And I think it can be really helpful to the not plating for them is huge. Every time we've ever done a buffet style dinner, which I try to do most of the time, but sometimes, you know, it's a quesadilla and it's there or or what have you. And I think one of the the things too is that sometimes it is difficult because we're we're parents and we're like, well, we're gonna you know serve at the at the stove. We're not gonna put anything in these things. We're not gonna add all these ad, added added dishes. But 
I think if you are having a child who's having a difficult time or you're living in this worry cycle, taking the extra plates and having a little extra serving dishes is totally worth the, the energy in order to do that. And I have definitely seen neutralization of sweets being awe. Like it's like, it can sometimes sit there and you can see your child and it's an awe, like a complete awe of the way that they interact with it. And sometimes when you see it, when it's used differently in other people's homes and how they all of a sudden shift, like our daughter came home and, and said, Hey mom, can I have, um, a treat after my dinner. I'm like, well, when did we ever do that? Like, like, what are you talking about? And it's clearly something that she learned in someone else's home. And so it's interesting, like how they carry it forward and how you have to kind of, you know, work on it even at home and just making sure that you don't kind of do that at the same time, but it's so well worth it to do that. I will tell everybody that it's feels instinctually really hard to do as a parent, because I think the last thing I was going to ask is for all the parents who are listening, I feel like there's probably some people who are like, but, but, but what about their health? You know, but what if like this worry is something that I feel like is actually a worry and this feels too laze, you know, and to like, how do I let truly let go of that? If I've been told by the authorities and the people that I trust and or hired, you know, they're, they're feeding therapists, they're early interventionists, they're all the different pieces that might be feeding into this, their physician, all the different stuff. One of the things that I really liked that you talked about in the book too, is um, the concept of what's important now. And I would really love for you to explain that a little bit and how that looks in application when you're at a meal And for the parents out there who are kind of like, well, this sounds awesome. I love the idea of not having a battle, but I'm nervous about the things that I'm worrying about. And I hear that they're misconceptions, but they don't feel like misconceptions to me. What kind of advice do you have for them? I mean, I've been there when (laughs) when we, uh, I I get it. It's, this is really scary stuff sometimes. And, you know, when I um, started with not limiting my daughter's portions um, and doing this sort of, I'm putting the food out and if she wants more, I give her more. And she was um, a year and a half, sometimes eating more than my six foot two husband (laughs) at meals. And I, it's, I think, If you're really struggling with this, learn more before you jump in, because Mm -hmm. otherwise uh, the first transition period is kind of scary. So my daughter ate a lot for a while. um, And and if you don't sort of know the research or that's why my book, too, is full of a lot of research. It's like, hey, and, and stories from parents who've been there. That's a super important piece of it is like. I get it. And, and I sort of white knuckled it. I sort of, there were meals where she'd want more of this, you know, we have this little turkey curry. I remember this so well, like more, and I put a second helping more, a third. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to stop her. And then, it, and then this is the piece where if you can get to seeing early signs of progress, um, it's, it's, and know what to look for, it's really important. So I remember so well that like more and that I think third or fourth serving that I put on her plate. So that's the other thing with, with family style is you can serve children in ways that are responsive. So there's flexibility there too. But so I, I remember putting it on her plate. She had one bite and then said all done. And that was a child who'd never on her own said all done. I was always limiting to what I thought a reasonable portion was. And so we have to allow them to get to that point of 
being able to tune in again and to decide they are the one who decides when they're stopping. Um, and, and that's really scary. And so, mm -hmm. you know, first off is having guardrails in place. If you have a child who's not eating a lot where you are worried about weight, like maybe don't change everything at once, do one thing at a time and then observe. And certainly, you know, if, if, if weight is low, if you're someone where like, oh, we're actually, we are thinking about maybe this child needs a feeding tube, working closely with your, with your healthcare team. But um, so what's important now is, again, the felt safety at the table is the, the most important piece, I think, during this transition time. And so early progress will be, um, my child is actually sitting at the table for 10 minutes instead of being there for 30 seconds and immediately saying I'm full and running to get away. Or it might be for the anxious eater, um, like playing with food or serving a parent. So I have lists in the book of like, here's early progress. If you have an anxious eater, like maybe it's that they're watching you eat, you know, or they're curious or asking questions about food or they're eating larger amounts of their preferred foods. And so it's important to know what early progress looks like before the anxious eater maybe eats more variety or before the food preoccupied child tunes in and says, I'm done, you know, with food preoccupied kids. Um, and that's, that is where the child's interest in seeking of food interferes with, you know, the work of being a child. They're, they're the kid at the party who's just grazing on everyone's snacks or is not playing. They're, you know, glued to the buffet or they're constantly whining or asking for food. Um, and the first thing you might see is that they play between meals and they forget to pester you about food or ask about food. Or instead of eating everything on their plate in a minute and a half and then begging for more, maybe it takes them longer to eat. And maybe, you know, one client said, my my child bit her toast into the shape of a fish and was playing with it and that's a huge sign of progress for a child where a month earlier mm -hmm. um, just shoved it in her face as, as quickly as she could out of that anxious energy so um so i think it's really important in terms of um, focusing on what's important now is that felt safety are they calm because that's the space again where they can tune into what's going on in their bodies and all of those other drives to eat. And we know from adults that um, that tuned in or intuitive eating or internally driven eating um, is linked with all kinds of positive outcomes versus, you know, I'm going to eat what my Fitbit tells me or my, mm -hmm. you know, Weight Watchers app or whatever it is. And so this to me is really setting up the space for kids to be able to tune into those cues to the best of their abilities. Um, but knowing, again, knowing what early progress is for, for food anxiety or for food preoccupation and looking for that and um, celebrating that is really important to sort of help keep, keep faith in the process because it's a bit of a leap of faith at first. You know, yeah. 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 Yes. If I stop bribing with dessert, he is not going to eat that cucumber for a <laughs> while. And, um, you know, another piece I wanted to say is there's so much about exposures like, oh, you have to try it 10 times. And the piece that gets missed and it, this I just was doing a, a talk for feeding therapists and I had this great quote that the emotional context of where those exposures and tastes happen is super important. And if it's a positive emotional context, they make those positive connections with food. 
Um, and this researcher who reviewed all these studies on exposure said, if it's a negative, coerced, um, fraught exposure, then they're likely to not have good feelings about that food and, and want to eat it in the future. So you may get a bite of cucumber in bribing with dessert, but they're not likely to enjoy um, and, and eat those cucumbers um, when it's up to them. That actually makes a lot of sense. And I feel like that's um, not discussed because I think it is really important that the context of how the experience is happening is really important too. One of the things that I really enjoyed reading about that I have felt kind of passionate about is the idea of um, you might not like it yet. I have definitely said that to my daughter before, but then I changed it and I said, you may never like it though. And that's okay. I, and I, I like to tell her too, of things that I don't like, um, you know, I'll say, you know, you might not like this and you don't have to like everything. And I think that's something that we forget in children is we think that in order to be a quote unquote, good eater, they need to like everything. But if we take a step back and look at our own eating patterns, there are certainly things we don't have a preference for. And I don't think that makes us a bad eater, but something about it in children becomes this label and everyone wants to have a, a, a quote unquote, good eater because that gets a lot of praise externally. And one of the things that I think is important that I've noticed with my daughter is by telling her you don't have to like peppers. You might not, you know, you might like it someday. Who knows? Maybe you do. Like the other day, I told her a story about how the other day I didn't really like peppers. And then my husband made a peppers lunch for like a dish for lunch. And I ate it and tried it. And I was like, wow, I actually got I actually kind of liked it. And she said, really, you liked it now? And I said, yeah, it was kind of different. I was not expecting to like it, but I decided to give it a try. And that's what happened. And um, she has not tried peppers. I don't expect her to try peppers anytime soon. But I do feel like it does, instead of forcing the get, it allows the, the, the thought process, at least to me, maybe you have a different opinion. It allows the opportunity for it to feel like this isn't the way it's always going to be. I think sometimes kids get stuck on that. Like, I don't like that food and therefore that's, I'll never like it. And I think if you open up their minds that their palate can shift and that there's flexibility there, that it's okay to one, not prefer a food and have foods that they prefer and normalizing that a little bit. And at the same time saying, sometimes that changes when we least expect it. I'm 38 and all of a sudden I like I liked a yellow pepper. Who would have known? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Ab absolutely. I think those are those are great messages. Um and it and it sort of flips the the this, you know, popular mantra now of like they have to try it 10 times before they can decide if they like it or not. Um and so I the one thing I say to be careful about in the book is what's your intention with mm. what you're saying and how often are you saying it? And, and I like the idea of like, well, you don't like it yet. Fine. But what I see is like every time the child, well, you don't like it yet. You don't like it yet. Um, that sometimes these good intentions can turn into pressure if we're saying it at every meal. So if every meal you're giving a, you know, a mini talk about like, well, you don't like it yet, but you know, I didn't like it and someday I will. And someday you may or may not like it. And then, if it's every meal, and I'm not saying it is for you, yeah. um, 
But that's where we fall into this trap as parents because we've been told that we have more control over this process than we likely do. And there's this anxiety of, I've got to get these 10 tastes in. So I'm going to say all these things to try to make that happen. Um, and that even the attention can backfire. So if you have a really anxious eater or there's been a lot of attention, I wouldn't even talk about, I wouldn't say the words yet, you know, yet to them, well, you don't like it yet. And I would really pull back on if you're doing a lot of stories. And again, this is the question parents ask themselves. I just say, pause at the table. Why am I saying what I'm going to say? Mm -hmm. Is it to get them to try the peppers this time? And I don't think that was your intention. And then responding to her, she asked questions back like, oh, that you liked it this time. That's a conversation. But if we're going into saying things, um, and I do this a lot. This is like we're we're told to narrate our lives to our kids. So we're constantly talking. So it feels very natural to have these conversations and talking and sort of teaching. But really learning to like new foods is an experienced process. And the more we talk and try to lead and guide and encourage, the more that they feel like there's a tension on me, which some kids don't like. So they'll push, they'll resist or push back. Um, I can't do it. This must be really hard if there's this much attention to it. So, uh, and it gives them things to push back against. So if you have a child who's really strong-willed and wants it to be their idea, their way, their time, that doesn't help either. So tongue in cheek, I sometimes say to parents, when in doubt, shut your mouth. <laughs> I <laughs> love that. <laughs> and because for me, that's not natural either. So I had to sort of do that <laughs> mantra to myself too. But, um, and this takes patience, like, like, you know, I have a daughter, she's 17 now, she eats a wide variety, but she's very particular about how she likes things. So she, um, and for example, you know, we had salads show up at dinner for six years. So she had more than 10 exposures to salad. <laughs> she never ate lettuce, um, but she would pick some of the vegetables off the top. We called them goodies. So here's the salad bowl. This just like how this might work. I'd say, do you just want some goodies? So then she would put a cherry tomato or peppers or, or you know, cucumbers. She put a few things, but never tried the lettuce. And then one day when she was six, she put some lettuce in her bowl. And that's where you have to bite your tongue and be like, oh, oh you're trying lettuce. No, just <laughs> shut your mouth, like just observe. And then she um, ate it and she was like, oh, I like salad. And I went, oh, okay cool. And, and it wasn't like, I knew you would, and that's so great. And salad's so good for you. It was just like, we, we give them the space to explore at their pace. And I, I guarantee you, if I had tried to get her to eat one bite of lettuce for the years that she was exposed to it, it would have been fighting. She probably wouldn't have then tried the other things from the top. Um, and so this is the hard part of this. This is often the patient's and the waiting out when our entire culture and every Instagram thing will be telling you, no, you got to do this. You have to train their palates. You have to make this happen. And what we're doing really is setting up the environment, um, the scaffolding for their skills, their capabilities, their curiosity to emerge. Um, and one last thing I want to mention that you know, we see a lot about gentle parenting and natural consequences and all of these parenting trends that I think are wonderful. And somehow, though, when food comes into the picture, it's like we we put our gentle parenting aside and say, well, now I have to make X, Y and Z happen because it's it matters so much to their health. And mm -hmm. it's so, somehow food is separate from 
how we parent around other things. And I observe this with friends with small kids, like we're spending the whole afternoon of, of offering choices to kids and respecting when they go out without a Coke, oh, they'll get cold and then they'll learn and it's okay. And then suddenly the meal starts and the relationship, it's like watching the shades go down on, on you know, this, this lovely sort of supporting the child's autonomy. And then suddenly it's half an hour of battling over that bite of the homemade pizza before the child can have the strawberry ice cream and how many mm -hmm. bites and there, and then it's fraught and that joy, that connection goes away, the child's whining, the parent's unhappy. So I want to encourage parents who are exploring gentle parenting and these ideas, just to remember that eating is, feeding our kids is part of parenting in general. And we can use those same strategies. We don't have to somehow treat it as, as different. Um, so anyway, that was just, no, I love that. I'm going to, um, we're going to wrap up here in just a second, but I want to, I love eating a nice piece of humble pie. And so I want to share this with everybody because it's a really great example of, of what you're talking about and my lack of the letting the natural consequences happen. And that the, the difficulty, and I talk about this all day long. I'm an eating disorder, nutritionist, health at every size, weight inclusive, anti-fat bias, like the whole, the whole thing. And it still is a struggle. So go gentle with yourselves. So Elodie and I, my daughter and I made, um, chocolate chip banana bread the other day. And it was a fun experience. We made it together. We had a, such a great time doing it. And at dinner the other night, she said, um, I'd like to have ch uh, some of the banana bread. And I said, yeah, sure. No problem. You know, here's everything we're having. Banana bread can be part of it. And then she kept going back for more banana bread and more banana bread and wanted more banana bread. And my husband, Casey looked at me and he goes, I don't know what to do here. And like, he just said that out loud. I don't know what to do. And I said, I'm, and I said, I'm struggling too. And I said, we're not going to do anything. And so I just let her keep eating it. And then later she turned to me at bedtime and said, mommy, I think I have a little bit of a belly ache. I think I had too much banana bread. And I said, that's okay. You know, the good thing about belly aches is they go away. You know, I was like, I bet you'll wake up in the morning and you'll feel perfectly fine. But you know, maybe next time you can decide differently about the banana bread. And then the next morning, my husband was going to get a piece of banana bread and she goes, watch out, dad, you might get a belly ache. And I turned to her and I said, he knows his belly and you know, your belly and you learned something new today about your belly. And it was so hard to not say you're going to get a bellyache. Stop eating so much banana bread. Like, don't do it. <laughs> uh, and I've been at this for 15 years. And <laughs> like two months ago, we were having breakfast. And for some reason, I always feel like I have to offer a fruit or something smoothie or fruit with breakfast. Um, and, you know, my daughter is a very capable eater. And she, I don't know what she had, but there was no fruit there. And so I stood at the fridge and I said, do you want to offer yourself a fruit? And she busted out laughing and was like, okay, mom, do I want to offer myself a fruit? And I just, was, so that was like the joke for two weeks. So I've been at it for 15 years and I still like, you know, my yeah, anxiety is like, oh, she needs a fruit or like, I have to put a fruit on the table or I've failed at breakfast. Like it's, it's still there. And so yes, be gentle with ourselves. And there aren't really mistakes. And I love that you, you didn't frame it as a mistake. Like, oh yeah, you ate too much and you feel bad. So don't do that next time. 
And the next time banana bread comes up, it's resisting that urge to say, oh, um, remember last time you ate so much banana bread, you got a stomach ache? Like they'll figure it out and we're here to support that. So, um, so yes, it's very hard. You will slip back, listeners, we, will, we all will slip back to that anxiety, that pressure, and then we just start again. It's, you know, it's okay. Thank you so much for coming on today. This was such a wonderful conversation. I feel like there are so many topics that we could dive into together. So I think we'll have to, I'll have to email you to have you come back on again, but um, do you want to share where people can find you or anything that you have coming up that you want um, to be broadcast here? Sure. So um, I'm on Instagram at Katia Rowell MD. So my first and last name, and I do lots of little reels with with little tips. Um, and um, thefeedingdoctor.com is my website. And if you're struggling with what you with picky eating or what you feel is more extreme picky eating, helping your child with extreme picky eating is a is a great resource. And um, yeah, and hopefully in the next six months, I'll come out with a version of Love Me, Feed Me for um, parents raising their biological children as well with um, neurodivergence and sensory differences. So I got a lot going on. But, you do. Uh, it's, really, it's really satisfying. And to me, I think as a physician, it's first do no harm. And I get really upset when I see preventable suffering. So that's what I'm trying to do is really um, is prevention. Like, we, there's enough suffering that we can't necessarily escape. So let's not add to it. Thank you so much. What a great message. And we look forward to having you back on with all of the fun things you have coming up. So thank you. Hey friends, it's Dana. And thanks so much for listening to the wholehearted eating podcast today. Find us on social media at wholehearted eating pod on Instagram and at wholeheartedeating.com for more information about working with Dana and Christina for one-on-one nutrition counseling. If you love the show, we would love you forever if you'd share an episode with your family and friends or tag us on social media or leave a five-star rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts to help more people find the show. Check out patreon.com slash wholeheartedeating to help support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, bonus episodes with us and our guests, episode discussions, new resources we're creating for Patreon, and so much more. If you have questions for us, feedback on the show, potential topics or guests you'd love to have on, shoot us an email at hello at wholeheartedeating.com and we'll see you next week.